Church, let's continue to worship as we open God's Word together. If you have your Bible, Ephesians chapter 5. See today in this text of Scripture that we are together uh, as a church, and we are together in worship as a church. We've spent considerable time the past few weeks asking the question, considering uh, why the church has been called together underneath God and his authority and his rule and his reign on the earth. He calls the church together and, and gives us a lot of information in the Bible, a long explanation in the Bible as to why we are together in the church. We've seen how we're together in unity, we're together in love, we're together in humility, we're together in Christ, we're together in the gospel, we are together in the church as the church. And all of that kind of builds the case as to what the church comes together to do. We've illustrated it beautifully in song this morning. We've prayed it beautifully in prayer this morning that we, as a church, we we come together and and worship unto God. That's what we'll see today in Ephesians chapter 5, that we are the church and we are together in worship. Pray with me as we begin. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you, and God, our, our hearts cry. The, the, the plea of our heart this morning is this, God, that you would show us, God, by the truth of your word, and God, by the power of your spirit, the wisdom that is ours in worshiping you. God, the, the spirit that is actively at work among us as we worship you. God, worship is not something that we just casually do every seven days as a church. God, it's not even something we casually do every day of our lives. God, there's thoughtful intentionality behind it, Father, because it is the overflow of your Spirit's activity and the transformation of our hearts. And so, Father, as we gather around Ephesians chapter 5 today, God, we we pray that that work would be fresh and new in our hearts and in our spirit today. Lord Jesus, do this. For the good and glory of your name, we pray. Amen. Ephesians is a fascinating letter of all of the New Testament epistles. You know, they all have a reason for being written. But Ephesians really is written not really to combat a problem. There's not a real occasion that Paul is writing uh, to speak of. Um, It's really just general instruction, if you will. Uh, Think of it as preventative maintenance on your car. It is just the regular oil change that keeps things going and flowing healthy and smooth and right. And Ephesians was written in so many ways to the church at Ephesus as preventative maintenance for the church, how the church should come together and express unity and love amongst a diverse people. We see it played out beautifully in the text as it talks about relationships, as it talks about love. Particularly in chapter 5, it talks about walking in love and how worship in so many ways is an expression of us as we walk in love. It's what we do. It's, it's who we are. We walk in love and worship is our expression of our love to God. So we gather together, we, we express our love to God, and we express it to one another. It is the regular practice of declaring to God that he alone is worthy of our worship. But it's also the reason for us gathering together and proclaiming to one another that we as a church, we gather together and he and he alone is worthy of our worship. 
He's not the most important one worthy of our worship. He's the only one worthy of our worship. And so every single time we, we gather as a body of Christ, we are declaring this truth to God and we're declaring it to one another, that he alone is worthy. And what we see in Ephesians chapter 5 is the picture of how walking in love as the people of God is a picture of worship, but it's seen in the beginning of verse 15, and 15, 16, and 17 as an exercise of wisdom, that there is wisdom that is ours as we worship God. The kind of intro to this text is fascinating when you see how Paul writes this in verses 15 through 17. I'll read those if you'll follow along. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see, this general call to wisdom to live in Christ likeness really takes on hands and feet in the way that Paul writes. Has a few specific implications for us in these verses. One, he says to walk carefully, that as we live in this life of worship, as we exercise wisdom in our worship, that we are to do so carefully, under careful examination. Be careful how you walk. If you've spent much time in the New Testament, you know the idea of, of walking is kind of the, the, the picture that's used throughout Scripture to describe the daily life and rhythm and routine of a follower of Jesus. So just like you go for a casual stroll down your street, uh, through your city block, um, and it's just the regular routine of health. So it is for us as followers of Christ to look carefully how you walk. It's a picture of wisdom, that we do so with wisdom, with a sound mind, with good judgment. Our worship is careful examination. It's intentional. It's purposeful that we gather with this group of people at this particular time to make much of Jesus. This is your church family. We are First Baptist Church of Rocky Mount. We're not just a haphazard group of folk who found 200 South Church Street this Sunday morning. Like there's intentionality that's crafted here for the body of Christ. We are here, careful examination as we walk in wisdom. But Paul continues and says it's not just a, a careful way of living. There's like some real intentional application here. He tells us to, to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. The idea of, of, of making the best use of the time is the picture of that we are called to, to redeem the time in which we live. We all know we do not and will not live forever, but we're living right now. And so the call of the heart of the Christian in worship unto God is to make best use of this time that you have been given right now. Regardless of your age, you've been given this moment of this day. So therefore we redeem the time but we redeem it in the midst of evil. So we don't run from evil days. We don't, as a church, as a the Christian, we don't have to hunker and hide from evil. We worship in the midst of evil, is what Paul says. This is what the church does. When the world around you is going crazy, we gather in the church and we intentionally apply the truth of Scripture to this particular body of Christ. And we can worship and redeem this time. Regardless of who's president, regardless of what our economy is doing, regardless of what the stock market did this week, regardless of what in the world is going on in the world around us, we gather in the midst of that to redeem it. Because regardless of how good or bad it's going, it's still broken. 
And Jesus is the thing that makes us whole. So we gather and worship as intentional application of who we are. That we, as the body of Christ, that there is no better use for your time than the way you're choosing to redeem it this morning. I believe that with my whole heart. Not just because I'm the, I'm the pastor of this church. If something were to change, I promise you, next Sunday morning, my family would be in church. Right? It's the best use of the life of the Christian to gather with a body. We've talked about this. One body with many members and to worship the Lord together. In all honesty, because I don't trust to worship God by myself. Like if I just did that for all eternity, there would be no one outside of my wife and my family to call out my sin. And I know myself well enough to know that I need the constant sanctification that comes in worshiping together with the body of Christ. It's intentional application here. And it's fascinating. I feel like if, if, if we were to write this particular verse, that we would be captivated by the evil days, right? We would footnote it, we would explain it, we would define it, and we would describe it, wouldn't we? This is how bad it is in the world around us. But Paul, just kind of like from a thousand foot view, says, yeah, the days are evil. Just redeem them. Like, it's almost like it's not even a secondary. It's like a tertiary focus for him. Yeah, the days will be evil, but that's not the call of the church is to look around, man, whoo, that world's getting worse and worse and worse. Man, days are getting more evil and more evil. Like the longer, I'm not sure how much longer we got here. It's reality, right? One day our time will come to an end. But in, in the meantime, the call of the Christian life is to redeem the time that we have been given. Why? Because the gospel is the message of redemption. It is the very core of the core of our belief as Christians. That we've been entrusted with the message of the gospel and the message of the gospel is that God came, he sent his son to redeem and to restore so, of course, it makes sense for us to redeem the time around us. So our worship here is intentional application, that when we see darkness, that we redeem the time and run to worship. When days are evil, we redeem the time and run to worship. I think sometimes in the Christian life, it's like when you wake up in the middle of the night and you got to get out of bed for whatever reason, kids are screaming, got to go to the bathroom, whatever, it's pitch dark around you. Like the choice, I think, for the Christian is we can stand there long enough for our eyes to get adjusted before we start stammering through the house. Or like you can just turn on the light. And so what God is, or what Paul is writing to say here, like in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the evil, just turn on the light. And you'll see what happens when we gather in worship unto God. There's careful examination. There's intentional application. Third, there's thoughtful understanding. He says, do not be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. The antonym of foolishness is not your wisdom. It's the will of the Lord. So often we try to combat our own foolishness with our own wisdom, not realizing it's probably our own wisdom that got us into that foolishness in the first place. And so the call here is, hey, you come back and you come back to the will of the Lord. I know for in Christianity, kind of in mainstream Christianity, the idea of the will of the Lord sends so many people into a tailspin. Um, but listen, the will of the Lord does not require some special revelation. Like the will of the Lord is found in the word of the Lord. Right? And so the call of the Christian life is for us to get as close to this we possibly can to the word of God and keep yourself close to the word of God. And in that place, we will see and understand what the true will of the Lord is. You see, our worship is thoughtful understanding of the will of 
God. In the worship of God, in our wisdom as we worship God, the, the will of the Lord is what draws us into this daily personal rhythm routine of worship. And it's also the will of the Lord that draws us into this regular routine of this weekly corporate worship. You see, it's the same will, it's the same word that kind of gives you the the understanding of Scripture, that gives you the framework of Scripture for you to live your life as a daily sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as your spiritual act of worship. But it's also that same will and that same word that calls us as a church together every single week into these rhythms of life that are healthy and good for us. And it's the same word that sustains both. That we do not live under the pressure of having to reinvent the wheel. Like when you wake up and you open your Bible tomorrow morning to begin to commune with the Father on your own, like you don't have the pressure in your life that you need to reinvent the wheel in order to know how to do that. Like when we gather and worship next Sunday, like it's not because your pastor is set in meetings all week scratching, well, what in the world are we going to do Sunday? Like we don't live under the pressure to reinvent the wheel every single week. We stand on the word of God and it's the word of God that draws us into the worship of God. It's the hope, it's the wisdom that we have. So our call is to live in the wisdom of God is a call to obedience, that we look carefully, that we apply intentionally, that we understand thoughtfully. Yes, when life is crazy, yes, we walk in love. We walk in worship, and there's great depth here that true worship is found as we walk in wisdom with our Father. Paul begins this to understand before he kind of unpacks these imperatives of how the Spirit moves and guides and directs us in worship. He begins with this realization, hey, this is all about wisdom. This is your choice as the Christian to look carefully, to apply intentionally, to understand the will of the Lord in your heart and life. And then he goes on in the next few verses and says, and here's how that looks in the life of the church. The call to wisdom is a call for us to see and understand the spirit of our worship. So we understand the wisdom of our worship, and secondly, we understand the spirit of our worship Look at verses 18 through 21. Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul ends this section on wisdom, and then he begins verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He's giving this dichotomy here, and yes, it is to be understood literally, but also we understand our own hearts and lives. We understand the reality that you will be filled with something, and our lives get to choose what? Will we be filled with an aspect of this world? drunkenness, idolatry, sin, slothfulness, you can name it. Will that define our hearts and lives or will the word of God and the worship of God and being filled with the spirit of God define our lives? You see, the spirit of worship is being filled with the spirit in our worship. So oftentimes we describe our experiences on Sunday morning as if we have felt the Spirit. And I think we mean that well, and we try to redeem those words. That, oh man, I really felt the Spirit in this part of the service, or that part of the service, or this part of it, or that part. 
I don't think that's necessarily ill-informed. I just think it's incomplete here, right? Because we're not called to feel the Spirit. We're called to be filled with the Spirit. And sometimes those two things are worlds apart. Because you see, being filled with the Spirit is so much more than just a pat on the back whenever we're singing your favorite song. God can certainly do that. It's a very small sliver of that puzzle. Being filled with the Spirit is daily, continuous action. If you read this in, in the original Greek, what we see is the way that Paul is writing here is that every single moment of every single day, that being filled with the Spirit is a constant choice for you and your heart and in your life. That yes, you might have been filled with the Spirit today, October 31st, 2021, but tomorrow, November the 1st, you have to make that same choice. Will you, are you being filled with the Spirit? This week, Amy was cooking supper one night, and I walk into the kitchen, and she's boiling a pot of water. And she has this wooden spoon laid across this pot of water. Some of you might already know what I'm about to talk about. And I was like, Amy, what in the world are you you're doing? And she said, well, I just found out, like, if you lay this wooden spoon over boiling water, somehow something happens in that scenario that keeps the water from boiling over or helps the water not boil over. I didn't know that. Um, and so I don't understand the science behind that, but I kind of understood the effects behind that. Like, I think about our hearts and lives as a Christian. Like, I think we're all good, right, to have some boiling water on the stove. But I think we are so scared of the spirit of the living God actually overflowing from us that every single week and every single day that we get this rhythm and routine and we like it nice and healthy, but we also lay this nice little wooden spoon over the top of our lives to keep the spirit from doing anything or bubbling over that might make me uncomfortable. And I think as we consider this, like, listen, you can only contain a pot of boiling water for so long, right? And so if the word of God is, is dwelling within us, scripturally, that's the call of the Christian life, and our lives are, are simmering here on the heat of the spirit, then sometimes we just need to be free to let the spirit of the living God do what the spirit of the living God does. And what does that look like? Paul gives us in verses 18 through 21. I think five participles that describe that in the life of the church. This is one long sentence if you read it in your Bible. And Paul takes the spirit of worship and shows us how we can be filled with the spirit in our worship. So five kind of bullet points here that I think paint this picture for us, for us as the church, as the Christian, to be filled with the spirit in our worship. One is that we address, or NIV says, we speak to one another in verse 19. That the Spirit's activity in worship is amplified in our address towards one another. That, that worship is not just us speaking to our own hearts, although that's true. Worship is not just us speaking to God, although that is true. That worship is declaring the truths of God to the people of God. So when we gather in worship every single Sunday, what we're doing is we're gathering as this local expression of the body of Christ, and we are speaking truth to one another as we sing to God. You have 168 hours in your week. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. This coming week, you will have 168 hours. And for one hour, or if the preacher's long-winded, one hour and 15 minutes of your week, what we're asking and the call that Paul is laying for the church is he is laying this out and he is saying very intentionally 
and very purposely that when we gather, we is greater than me. That our collective body defines and describes what we do on a given Sunday. This is the church of First Baptist Church on October 31st, 2021. We are this particular local expression. And so when we gather in corporate worship, it is a joy to speak to one another. And as we speak to one another, we're not just wanting each other to feel good about ourselves, although we do. The heart and the purpose of this is we want to speak good and right truth to one another. Let me illustrate this. One of my favorite hymns, I'm sure one that you know, is Great is Thy Faithfulness. So as we sing this as a church, we're declaring to God that his faithfulness truly is great. But we're also declaring to one another that his faithfulness is great. So consider this. Member of our local church, probably true, week in and week out, walks in to church and there's something happening in their heart and life where they are overwhelmed by the unknown of the future. Maybe it's financially, maybe it's job-related, maybe it's family-related, who knows. But they walk in and there is some sort of uncertainty in their future. Listen to this verse and the truth that we're singing to one another. We're saying, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father, that there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, you know this, right? Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. So when we walk in, we are ministering to one another. as We're singing that this is true about God. And listen, church, it's true about your circumstances that you come in with. Perhaps same song, someone walks in, they're struggling with hard-heartedness or bitterness or lack of forgiveness. Listen to this verse. Great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning. You know it, right? New mercies I see. So we're saying, we're proclaiming to God, we're thanking God that we woke up this morning, God, and there's new mercies for me. But we're also declaring to our body of Christ is, listen, you're walking in and you're struggling to forgive or you need to be forgiven. Remember that in the faithfulness of God, there's new mercies for you today. Perhaps a member walking in, they're struggling with a particular sin. They're feeling overcome, defeated. But God's faithfulness is great and there is pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to God that there's strength for today and hope for tomorrow. So yes, we're singing this because it's been applied to me and my own heart. We're also declaring this to one another, that his faithfulness is great and it's great for us, all of us. So you see, the spirit is active in our worship as we speak to one another with our worship. Well, what do we say to one another? Paul says, Three general categories, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You can't make this stuff up. That we sing psalms, we sing scriptural music. We sing the songs of scripture in our worship. We sing hymns. We sing spiritual music, the rich hymns of our faith that have stood the test of time. There's also this category here for spiritual songs. It's songs of the the soul is what one commentary says. And somehow in these three categories, evidently the early church must have struggling with styles of worship as well. And Paul writes to say, hey, actually this variety is good for the body of Christ. Now we'll entrust it to your elders and to your pastors and to your teachers to kind of give some context and leadership to those things. But Paul is literally saying that these are good and right things. But don't miss it. They're almost a secondary emphasis. 
we sing and we sing to one another and we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now listen, it's really important that we sing right theology. But it's really important that we sing right theology to the right people, to one another. And that's kind of how Paul is phrasing this and framing this, that this variety, Paul is literally giving a recipe for a healthy diet for the Spirit's activity in our worship. So what do we do when we address one another? There's a comma, and there's a word that might make some of us uncomfortable. We sing. The trouble, if you don't like to sing, is that this participle stands alone in Scripture, meaning that it it is its own command in Scripture. That when we gather as the body of Christ, the command that we have is to sing. That we have a singing faith that is the overflow of joy within our hearts. And I do believe that singing is a command in the New Testament church, that we are the bride of Christ. You see it from the earliest of churches, and then we gather together to sing to one another in this place and also in our own lives. It was Paul who wrote Ephesians. Do you remember what happened, Paul and Silas, when they were in prison in Acts 16? Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And their prisoners were listening to them. You see, it's that heart that overflows with joy and song that is a testimony to the world around us. And what happened? And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone, everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now I'm not going to say whether this text is prescriptive or descriptive. But what I am going to say is that God uses the singing of his people to break chains. That God brings and uses the joy of our body as we sing and declare to one another to set people free. Why? Because we are the body of Christ and we care about every single member that is ours. And so when we come and we gather in worship, we sing to God and we sing to one another. An illustration I've used, and I remember it just like it was yesterday. It was a snowy Sunday morning in Boone at the church we formerly served at. There were 75 people tops in worship service that Sunday, but we had a pastor who never canceled church, and so we showed up. It was cold and windy and snowy out, and a handful of college students had snuck in, and we were singing, Just As I Am, that that new rendition that Travis Cottrell has where he added the verse, we've sung it here before, that I come broken to be mended, I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms. Praise God, just as I am. That small sanctuary, that cold day, we were declaring this to God and to one another. When a few rose behind me, I heard a shout for joy that I've never heard in a worship service ever since. And it was in that song that one of our college students turned to faith in Jesus because the church was declaring this to be true of God, set free. We sing and address and speak to one another in song and in so doing the third participle and in so doing we make melody. That's what verse 19 says, to the Lord. Melody is the picture. It's a, a linear, it's a textbook definition here, a linear succession of musical notes that the listener perceives as a single entity. As we're doing this as a church, we're making melody to God. 
to the Lord. Somehow in the balance of our praise to God and in our instruction to one another, this comes together and in the sound of our Father, it is a melody that he hears. When all of us gather together with our own voices and with our own hearts and we offer God a melody, it's pleasing to his ear. But where does this melody come from? Look at verse 19. It comes from the heart. There's so much discussion here, right? Is, well, is, is worship music, is it meant to be emotive, right? Like how much emotion should there be in planning of worship? Or is it all about just saying the right things? We don't have to have any personality. We can say the right things and look like we're watching paint dry and that's acceptable. Is that, is that how that works? Like how does this all come out in the wash? Is it knowledge? Is it passion? Is it reverence? Paul gives the answer here. It comes from your heart. And the frustrating thing is the answer even gives us more questions. Because what Paul says here, it comes from the heart, the very center of our being. That in our worship, we are offering all that we are. Your head, your heart, your hands. All of it to God in worship. Practically, what that means is we don't get to pick and choose the aspects of ourselves that we offer to God in worship. You offer all that you are and all that that means. The part that comes naturally to you, offer it to God. The part that you're walking in sanctification, demonstrating self-control, you offer that to God as well. We offer him all that we are from our hearts. And as we do that, we see that we give thanks to God. That act is an act of thanksgiving, is what verse 20 says, giving thanks always for everything. When we gather as the church in worship, we are gathering for always and for everything and offering this worship as an act of thanksgiving. That sounds good, but Luke, you just don't know the week that I've had. And you just don't know the burden that I'm carrying when I walk into this place. You don't know how late I stayed up watching the Braves win the World Series game last night. Luke, you, you, you just don't know what I'm walking into carrying. You're right, I don't. But what I do know is that God sent his son for you. And that while you were filthy and unclean, the Bible says it like this, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And if that doesn't evoke something from your heart, Let's just say, I don't know if you have a heart. If you understand what Christ has done for you on the cross and you can walk in and not say thank you in song for one thing that he's done for you, I'm not sure he's changed your heart. Because you see, the picture here is that the Christian understands that God sent his son to pardon your sin. That he sent his son to die on the cross for you. That he was buried and he was dead. He paid the penalty, paid in full for you. And three days later, he rose again to defeat both the power and penalty of sin for you. That's what God did for you in his son. And so when we gather together, we can worship and we can give thanks because that's true. Regardless of what your week looked like, regardless of what your afternoon holds, that is true and it's true for you. And the way that we see that played out in scripture, we give thanks always and for everything. In so many ways, it's believing, Romans 8, 28. 
And we know that for those who love God, he works all things together for good. We might not can see it on October 31st. We might not can understand it on October 31st, but we come together we, and believe the promise of God that today he is working things together somehow for his purpose and our good. Paul goes on to say that we give thanks to the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. Powerful verse. We see this Trinitarian language come into our worship We can't parse it out. All that we know is that all of God is active in all of our worship. And so because that's true, this fifth participle, probably the most fun for us, is that we submit to one another. And it's the great argument. We've seen it before the past couple weeks in Philippians chapter 2, that the way we worship is as important as the words we use to worship. The way we worship, the, the, the posture of our heart is as important as the words that come from our lips. Often we think about that our worship is in submission to God. There's a part of that that's true. But what we see in Ephesians chapter 5 is that Paul says submission in your heart is to who? To one another. We spent weeks walking through the one another's of the New Testament the way in which the New Testament church is described and the way we're supposed to look and the way that we're supposed to be together as a church. And what Paul says, we walk into worship with submission in our hearts towards one another. And in that place is fertile ground for the Spirit's activity in our worship. That our submission one to another as a church is as important as what we say to one another. In submission, we know that's a, a weird word, abused, misused, I would say, sometimes in society and even in church. You see, submission is not about control or power. Submission carries with it the desire and ability to rearrange or to arrange in agreement to a greater purpose. It's not that you don't matter. That's not it at all. You have great significance to God. It's that when we gather as worship that we is greater than me. And we submit joyfully to one another. How God calls us to, to worship unto him. Think about this illustration. Thanksgiving's coming up. I love Thanksgiving, my favorite holiday, for many reasons, mostly the food. Think about it. I don't know what that tradition holds for you and your family. I don't know where you go or how you spend it or what you eat or what you cook. But this is a, a joyful occasion, right, in which we share a meal together. And yes, that meal is based on history and but that particular historical meal is applied to who? To the family that's gathering with you. So your family, if that's you or your children or your grandchildren, you'll gather around their house, around their table, and they will have prepared this spread. And that spread is the balance of the historical meal and the context in which it will be shared. Real life illustration, and don't judge me. I don't really like deviled eggs. I think it's because the first word that's used to describe the eggs. I don't think any Christian should like them. I don't like them, right? But what does it say about my heart if I'm walking through this line to eat at Thanksgiving with people that I love, sharing time with them that I love, and I see these deviled eggs, and I just get repulsed that they're there. 
I, can't, I don't like these eggs. I cannot believe. Why in the world would you serve these at this meal? I hate them. But you see, I know that everyone else <laughs> in my wife's family loves them. So I'm the weird one. They're the normal ones. And so I enjoy that meal, and we celebrate our differences in that meal. And so is our worship services each week. Like, what does it say about your own heart? Not anyone else's heart. What does it say about your heart? That you walk in and there's callousness and there's bitterness because there's an aspect of our service that you don't like. What Paul is writing to say is like, listen, when we understand the depths of who God is, we will worship and we will rarely think about ourselves. And that's the call to worship together as a church. That's the type of worship that when the world looks in at us, they're like, I don't know what's going on in that church, but it's otherworldly. And I'm so curious about it that I kind of want to be a part of it because there's something different that's going on there. So you see, this call to submission is not out of respect of man. It's out of reverence for Christ. And so our inability to submit to one another if that's in corporate worship, if that's in relationship, if that's in conflict, if that's in leadership, in all of these things, our inability to submit to one another is not that you don't love your neighbor as yourself. It's that you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because we don't understand submission unless we understand the submission of our Savior on the cross for us. That he became something so that we could be freed from something. So you can't take Merriam-Webster's dictionary of submission and apply that to the Christian life. You take Jesus Christ and his definition of submission, and that's what describes the church of the living God. And that's the call, church, to come and feast. Come and feast on the word. Come and feast as the church of the living God. And we do so as we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What Paul is saying here is this is what my church has gathered together to do. Yes, to bring me glory in heaven and to bring me glory on earth as the body of Christ gathers to worship one another. See, wisdom informs the best use of that time, but the Spirit informs the best attitude of our heart. And Paul says that is it. That is the mark of the church, that we are a light in the midst of darkness. We are hope in the midst of despair, and together we come together week in and week out. We come together as a church to proclaim this message. And then when we leave, that's corporate worship. When we leave, there's individual worship. Colossians 3 speaks a lot of this. And the picture in the New Testament is that whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's individual worship that is true, but there's something different when we gather as a church in worship. That we proclaim this message, and what makes it different is we proclaim this message together. We are together in worship. And it's a call for us to Lift our eyes above ourselves 
and to behold our God, to behold the one who sent his son for us, and to behold the beauty of this body, this local church, First Baptist Church of Rocky Mount, to behold him and his purposes for us. As we close this morning, you cannot worship a God you do not know. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son to redeem and to restore. That he sees your sin, he knows your sin, he sees your brokenness, he knows your brokenness, and he sent his son to make you whole. And in so doing, you are called into right relationship with him. That this type of worship can describe your life for the rest of your life. For us who've made that decision, I think the greatest danger in this text is for us to walk away this morning and in our heads think, okay, I got that. Like this is not just a box that you have to check on October the 31st. This is a regular routine of your heart and life that every single Sunday, Perhaps next Sunday, before we even begin worship, you should open your Bible to Ephesians 5 and read this text before we start worship. You see, this is a regular rhythm and routine that captures the heart of a heart that's captivated by Christ. But it's also an invitation to declare on earth what we will declare for all eternity. And what's that? That he and he alone is worthy. So every single week we have the opportunity to, it's a divine rehearsal for the song that will be on our hearts and on our lips for all time. So may we never take this time and this opportunity too lightly because we have come and we've come to behold him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are worthy. God, and your worth pushes us outside of our desire for control. God, your worth pushes us outside of our desire for ourselves. God, your worth pushes us outside of our self-consciousness that might tempt us not to sing. Because, Father, we have the opportunity this morning to rehearse what will be true for all eternity. And that is to say that you are worth it, that you and you alone are worthy of all that we are. And so, Father, as we respond this morning, God, we come and worship as a church, and we come and worship as a church to behold you. And all that that means for us, God, as we respond in this song now, I pray that you would captivate our hearts, Father, that we would sing boldly, clearly, loudly. We would speak to one another. Father, that in so doing, we would sing, sing from our heart the truths of God to you. And God, you would hear this as a beautiful, beautiful melody coming from your body. That it would be an offer of thanksgiving always and in everything. And God, it would be an act of submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. God, that is an exercise of wisdom, Father. That is how we can redeem these moments of these days at this time. So Father, our prayer as we respond is to be honored and glorified in these moments as we collectively, corporately, as a church, behold you. In Jesus' name, amen.